You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 9th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, the UN Secretary-General reiterates his plea for more aid to reach Gaza. Canada's Prime Minister adds his voice to calls for humanitarian pauses. We'll examine what it could take for a break in Israel's military operation to happen. First, we look at how the sensitivities of the Israel-Hamas war are causing problems in the US House of Representatives. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is a rallying cry for Hamas and Palestinians more broadly. But Israelis and many Americans interpret the phrase as calling for the destruction of Israel. More from our man in Washington, Chris Chemak, a little later. Plus... It's incredibly peaceful. It's the world's most gender-equal country. It's the world's happiest country. And then you have that in this natural setting. And I think that's a wonderful combination when it comes to tourism. The world travel market lands in London again. We'll hear from Iceland's first lady. And we'll find out why Paris is asking its students to take the place of workers who'd rather stay at home. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has held talks in South Korea on growing military ties between North Korea and Russia. Israel's spy agency Mossad says it's worked with the authorities in Brazil to prevent an attack by the Iran-backed militant group Hezbollah. And there's been a tentative agreement reached between Hollywood studios and the actors' union SAG-AFTRA. It means a shutdown lasting 118 days could be brought to an end. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the calls are growing and growing for some kind of humanitarian pause to allow aid to reach Palestinians in southern Gaza. The number of people now making their way along the broad highway that runs along the Gaza Strip is growing. The UN says that on Sunday, 5,000 people were on the move southwards. On Monday, that was 5,000, and by Tuesday, that number had swelled to 15,000. Meanwhile, the Israeli military claims Hamas has now lost control of northern Gaza after weeks of relentless bombing. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Daniela Pallad, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. A very good morning to you. Welcome back, Daniela. Good morning. So let's uh, bring us up to date, if you could, with this claim by the Israeli military that they now have control of northern Gaza. Well, there's been intense fighting um, around Gaza City and in in the north. I mean, uh, the troops are now on the ground, Israeli troops, uh, using exactly the same uh, uh, sort of urban warfare techniques that they have been trained for uh, intensely and used in other contexts uh, in the West Bank historically. So this is it, it comes as, at a high cost, given um, the impact on civilians uh, who have been urged to leave. Uh, there are reports that uh, from the media that embedded with the Israeli army that there is no sign of Palestinian civilians in um, the places that they are fighting. 
but obviously leaving behind uh, devastation and it's extremely risky for the Israeli soldiers fighting on the ground as well. Indeed, I mean, they're having to take this this step of, of fighting Hamas underneath the ground in the huge tunnel network which exists under Gaza. But just visiting that idea of, of, of who the Israelis are fighting, um, there was a small group of international journalists who were allowed to embed with the Israelis yesterday and go into northern Gaza. And... The, the scene was incredible in terms of there is literally nothing left in terms of homes, any kind of infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, it, it does look apocalyptic. I mean, obviously, we're not getting the, the full view because journalists are not allowed to uh, to move around freely. So we're seeing the, the most sort of epically destroyed areas. And uh, this is also, I imagine, something that the Israeli want the world to see and want uh their opponents to see it's it's the israelis were, were horribly humiliated in the appalling attacks of october 7th so this is another way of demonstrating uh their very much hard power resource of overwhelming uh, military ability uh it's but again it's impossible to get the full picture because there is no uh, there's no access for media Indeed. And, and as you know, um, in your work at the uh, Institute of War and Peace reporting, how has what is happening in Gaza and in Israel changed the way that you're viewing your job? Well, uh, it makes me feel that the, the need for free, fair and balanced uh, reporting is, 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 is even more important. And the uh, the impact of, of this conflict on media disinformation information has been huge. Uh, I've never seen anything like the kind of uh, hate speech, rhetoric and disinformation and fake news being spread uh, by uh, malign actors uh, online and also by by ordinary people. And this is very dangerous because it just fuels hatred, not in the region, but elsewhere. The the places where we work uh, in the Middle East, we're having extremely difficult conversations with staff because the situation could very, very easily uh, spill over. And not only that, but the the, the conflict is leading to soaring anti-Semitism in the UK and other places, and also the rise of Islamophobia. It's a very, very frightening time, and media really should be used as it should be a tool to to, to uh, improve. Uh, the situation in core heads and provide fair and free information. Unfortunately, that's not happening a lot of the time. What about the influence of the international community? I mean, we're, we're hearing the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, making some very strong points in the last few days. I mean, first of all, there's been America's warning about Israel's adherence or non-adherence to the rules of war and the fact that that civilians should not be targeted or should not be drawn into the conflict in in any circumstances or as many as much as circumstances was allowed. But also yesterday, Blinken warned Israel not to become occupy, occupiers after the war is over. Um, he said it's imperative that Palestinian people be central to governance in Gaza. How how much does that feed into the sort of the international reaction, but also the way that everybody else is reacting to what's happening in Gaza? Well, I mean, the, the the language is still fairly mild considering the scale of the crisis. No one, no one, uh, uh, you know, international allies are not calling for a ceasefire. We're talking about humanitarian pauses, which are likely to to happen in in the near future, probably allied to the release of some of the Israeli hostages being held in in Gaza. But for all this talk of occupation, I mean, I think there is a widespread agreement, certainly not within Israel, that Gaza was occupied by Israel. 
uh, even after Hamas um, took over in 2007, Israel withdrew all its settlers in 2005. However, it still retained uh, control of, of air, sea, borders, uh, extremely, extremely strictly. The situation in Gaza was very, very difficult even before this. Um, and the idea that what we are starting to hear slight discussions about what might happen the day after all, the day after is a very, very long way, uh, way uh, away. And there's some speculation of that the Palestinian Authority, although barely functioning and likely to collapse in the West Bank, might be brought in to administrate Gaza, although they would be clearly seen as uh, as, as proxies for Israel. Um, but the idea that there will be anything but total security control by Israelis over Gaza in the for the near and distant future is is is, is highly implausible. The Israelis are not going to be encouraged to allow any element of, of genuine self-rule for the, for a long time. And in the meantime, is there any sense that they will listen to what the certain voices in the international community are now saying? I mean, even yesterday, the Secretary General, Antony Guterres, said the number of civilians killed in Gaza shows there is something wrong with Israel's military operations. And even Belgium's prime minister is asking for sanctions against Israel because of what it is doing. I mean, where is this now leading in terms of the way that the international community... Um, treats Israel? Well, I mean, with all due respect to, to Belgium, I don't think the uh, the officials in, in, in Israel are going to pay much uh, attention. It's not a you know huge strategic partner. What matters is what America says and other international allies, because there is a wider network of, of cooperation here and security uh, cooperation. But uh, you know, is the hostility to Israel, the international community, is, is nothing new. You know, Israel is very sort of, you know, there's, as they used to say in Millwall, no one likes us and we don't care. I mean, Israel isn't, feels that it's now fighting a war for its survival. It sees Hamas as an existential threat, not only Hamas, but, you know, its backers from Iran. This isn't the time for diplomatic niceties. It's going to continue down this um, route, no matter how misjudged it might be or how impossible it can be to destroy Hamas militarily and entirely. Um, but this is its trajectory and it's, it's going to take intervention from serious allies rather than international opponents for it to change that strategy. Even the United States seems to be uh, struggling with the way to approach this conflict. Um, the US House of Representatives voted late on Tuesday to censure the Democratic Representative Rashida Tlaib uh, from Michigan. She's the only Palestinian American in Congress and it's an extraordinary rebuke of her rhetoric uh, about the Israel-Hamas war. Um, one wonders a little bit about how how this sort of can be possible when in the the when we live in it when when the United States has the free the first amendment which grants the right to free speech. Um, Danielle, I have a listen to um, a report now from Chris Chermak, our, our Washington D.C. correspondent, who talks about what's happened. Censures are strange things in U.S. political history. They're meant to be used extremely rarely. The highest form of rebuke short of expelling a lawmaker from Congress or impeaching a president. And yet it's basically a glorified slap on the wrist. The censure itself carries no actual power, and lawmakers can interpret the punishment as they see fit. And yet, the censure on Tuesday of Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American in Congress, should not be taken lightly. It marks just the 25th time that the U.S. House of Representatives has censured one of its members. 
and for the first time over a matter of speech. In the end, it came down to a phrase. We will remember in 2024. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is a rallying cry for Hamas and Palestinians more broadly. But Israelis and many Americans interpret the phrase as calling for the destruction of Israel. Rashida Tlaib, who posted a video of protesters in Michigan chanting the phrase, defended it as an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence. On Tuesday, she broke down, insisting that her passionate advocacy is to stop thousands of Palestinians being killed in Gaza and not about killing Jews or seeking the destruction of Israel. We are human beings. Just like anyone else, my city, my grandmother, like all Palestinians, just wants to live her life with freedom and human dignity we all deserve. Speaking up to save lives, Mr. Chair, no matter faith, no matter ethnicity, should not be controversial in this chamber. What makes this week's censure unique is that it targeted Representative Tlaib for her speech. Previous censures have been reserved either for bad actions, like corruption, or for making direct threats against other lawmakers. Ironically enough, suppressing political speech is something that Republicans regularly accuse Democrats and the White House of doing, particularly through social media. That was a fact not lost on a select few Republicans, like Ken Buck, who voted against the censure motion. To censure fellow member, no matter how incorrect we believe she may be, is wrong. We lower ourselves when we try to take action against someone else for their words. The question now is whether censuring Tlaib could open the door to a tit-for-tat, where the speech of U.S. lawmakers is targeted more broadly. For Monocle, in Washington, I'm Chris Chermack. So still with me is Daniela Pellet from the Institute for War and Peace reporting. Daniela, the, the fact there that what, what Chris Chernomek was, was mentioning was the, was the targeting of Rashida Tlaib for what she says. I mean, what, what does that mean? What does that say to you about the way that the US is struggling with this? Well, I think from the river to the sea is uh, is a troubling phrase because people, again, don't agree what it means and it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. I mean, certainly calling for the end of Zionism and the land of Israel, which, uh, you know, can be seen as political very common. But I think more importantly, I think what might have been slightly missed is that she also basically uh, said that Biden was supporting genocide. And I think, and that's a little, that's, you know, unambiguous um, um, perhaps goes beyond what's acceptable discussion. But uh, it, it is a troubling move. Um, and I think it's a reflection of how the the conflict is being weaponized outside Israel-Palestine for people to score political points. And th- th- exactly the same thing is happening in this country, by the way. Suella Braverman talking about hate, the pro-Palestinian marches in London as hate marches fueled by Islamists and so on. You know, people are positioning themselves uh, to score points uh, against the left or against the right, or even to you know, as another um, as another sort of battle in, in the culture wars as well. Uh, really, sadly, Israel Palestine is almost unique in the way that 
it's a conflict that often the actual people involved are ignored. It's, it's become a meta issue that, that everyone weaponizes and exploits as they please. Daniela Pellet, thank you as ever for joining us on The Globalist. You're listening to Monocle Radio. It's 8.16 in Madrid, which is where we head now. There have been violent protests outside the headquarters of Spain's Socialist Party. Dozens of people, most of them reportedly police officers, were injured as demonstrators voiced their anger at plans to strike a deal with Catalan separatists in order to form a government. Well, I'm joined now by Guy Hedgeco, who's a Madrid-based journalist. A very good morning to you, Guy. Good morning. So, uh, just describe the events of the last couple of days, please. Well, th- these are protests which have been... so. Sort of- building up in intensity over the last few days outside the the Socialist Party National Headquarters in central Madrid. Um, There have also been protests um, outside Socialist Party headquarters in some other parts of the country, but it's really been in Madrid where they've um, where the focus has been. Um, the night before last was when we saw some really uh, violent scenes uh, with around 40 people injured, most of them police, as they clashed with these protesters who are angry with the Socialist Party as it tries to negotiate this um, this amnesty law with Catalan nationalists. Uh, last night, I was there outside the, the Socialist Party headquarters. Things were a little bit calmer, but there were a lot of people still protesting, still very angry at uh, the socialist leader and acting prime minister, Pedro Sanchez. The background to this needs a little explaining, doesn't it? Because this dates back to the elections in July where the Socialist Party failed to win a majority to to form a government and now Pedro Sanchez, the acting Prime Minister, has to scrabble around for support and he's doing so with the Catalan separatists. Well, yes, that's right. I mean, the the Conservatives um, did actually win the, the election. They were unable to form a majority. Pedro Sanchez, it looks as if he could form a majority, but he needs uh, the support of just a, f- a handful of seats, really, in, in Congress, the support of uh, Catalan nationalists. Um, and we believe that in the next few hours, um, his Socialist Party and uh, Catalan nationalists are expected to announce a, an agreement on the creation of this amnesty law, um, an amnesty that would benefit potentially hundreds of Catalan activists and politicians who were somehow involved in uh, the 2017 uh, failed secession attempt by Catalonia. Um, and many of the people involved in that are still facing legal action. So those legal charges would be dropped. Um, in exchange for that amnesty law, Pedro Sanchez would receive the support of the these Catalan nationalist parties. And that is what is angering Uh, These people who are mainly on the political right, but not exclusively, but many Spaniards are angry about that. Certainly the the political opposition on the right is extremely angry about it. And it's an indication, isn't it, that nearly six years on, the 2017 referendum is something that still divides Spain deeply. So were the the Catalan politicians, politicians who were who are many of whom were in exile in Brussels were they to be granted this amnesty and were they to come back I mean what would that mean for the way that that Spain reacts to its politicians well yeah I mean and above all you have to bear in mind that Carlos Puigdemont you mentioned the, the politicians who are um, living abroad and who've been escaping the, the hand of the Spanish law Carlos Puigdemont who was the, the president of the Catalan region back in 2017 he's one of those he's been living in Belgium since 2017 he potentially could return and i think that is 
the issue which above all angers many people, the idea of Carlos Puigdemont, for example, being able to return to Spain, not facing any kind of legal action. I think that for many people would be very, very provocative. Um, and I think it, it wouldn't simply be a matter of, you know, these politicians coming back and coming back into normal political life um, with, without any repercussions. I think there would be a very angry response, certainly from the political right. The the idea behind this, according to Pedro Sanchez, is to calm um, tensions in Catalonia. It may be that it helps calm the tensions in Catalonia among pro-independence Catalans. But I think overall, on a national level, uh, this issue is becoming uh, particularly divisive. And as you say, this is six years on from that um, controversial uh, attempt to break away from Spain that, that Catalonia had. It's also drawn the attention of the European Union. We have the Justice Commissioner uh, Didier Renders um writing a letter wanting more details about this so-called amnesty law, not least because the theory is, is that if the politicians who are subject to the sanctions and the, and, you know, the criminal charges, which has led them to leave Spain, are now allowed to design a law which allows them to come back, I mean, big questions are going to be asked there. Yes. I mean, Didier Reinders wrote a letter which said that, um, and I quote here, there are serious concerns now being voiced as regards ongoing discussions on the possible adoption of an amnesty law. Um, now, the government wrote back immediately quite a sort of short response saying, um, as soon as the amnesty law is, is drawn up and registered in Congress, we'll, we'll let you know the detail of it. But I think this goes to the heart of what is angering Many Spaniards, the Spaniards who are who don't like the idea of the amnesty, they're saying that you know not only is this an amnesty for for people who broke the law, but it's an amnesty that's being drawn up, as you say, um, by people who will benefit from it, um, and they are sort of in a way dictating the the, the pace um, of Spanish politics and whether a, a national government can be uh, can be formed in the coming days. Um, so there are all sorts of issues there which um, which anger Spaniards on the right. But I should point out there are some socialist leaders who are also uncertain about this. Um, they're saying that they're not convinced that it's entirely constitutional, um, this measure. Now, I should point out that Pedro Sanchez himself and his team are saying that they are going to make an, that this is going to be an amnesty law which is absolutely bulletproof when it comes to um, legality and the constitution. But that doesn't stop it from being uh, extremely divisive, I think. Guy Hedgeco in Madrid. Many thanks for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme. <laughs> We celebrate a fresh discovery from Renaissance Florence after centuries hidden behind a trap door. Michelangelo's subterranean sketches will open to the public. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. 
7.23 in London. Let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is a political journalist and author, Terry Stiasny. Very warm welcome back, Terry. Good morning. Good to have your voice back on Monocle Radio. Right. Um, let us begin with something that Daniela Pellet mentioned a little bit earlier today in terms of the way that the rest of the world is reacting to the Israel-Hamas conflict. There are accusations and discussions here in the UK at the moment that the Home Secretary and indeed the co- the government... Um, are trying to manufacture an argument about all this in terms of an event which is happening this weekend. Yes, there seems it's it's very unclear what is going on here. I mean, in terms of the event this weekend, so every weekend since uh, the attacks have begun in the Middle East, there have been uh, demonstrations basically uh, calling for a ceasefire, generally sort of pro-Palestinian demonstrations uh, in central London. Now, of course, this weekend it is um, Armistice Day and it is Remembrance Sunday on Sunday and that is obviously traditionally marked with, on the Sunday, a big uh, parade. You get all the Prime Ministers and the Royal Family turning up at the Cenotaph in the middle of Whitehall where uh, the dead of the wars are buried and on the Saturday, which is the 11th, there will be the two-minute silence. Now, it marks the end of the First the World War. The first, it marks the end of the First World War and, you know, this is commemorated every year with, with big, you know, sort of respectful parades. And now, and there is a demonstration which is planned on uh, the Saturday to continue these protests. Now, there's been an ongoing discussion between the Metropolitan Police and the government as to whether it's right uh, that this demonstration should go ahead. Now, we should say it's not going to be on the same day as uh, the commemoration service on Sunday. It is not going to go anywhere near the war memorials in central London. But nonetheless, there have been some worries about whether there could be trouble. So that's the background to all of this. Now, um, yesterday, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, called in the head of the Metropolitan Police for a meeting to discuss whether this should go ahead. Um, And he then, after the meeting, came out saying, well, we think, look, you know, freedom of speech is very important. We've resolved this. This is all going to be fine. However, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, this morning has published an article in The Times where she seems to have stirred things up again, Um, very much so. She is saying police must be even-handed with protests. Um, She is accusing the police of, in her words, playing favourites with particular demonstrators. She says uh, that these marches are not... She doesn't believe that they are merely a cry for help for Gaza. They are an assertion of primacy by certain groups, particularly Islamists, of the kind we are more used to seeing in Northern Ireland. And she is explicitly saying here um, that right-wing and nationalist protesters who engage in aggression are met with a, rightly met with a stern response, yet pro-Palestinian mobs, this is her language, displaying almost identical behaviour, are largely ignored. And she believes that there is um, a difference between the way left-wing protesters and right-wing protesters are treated. And she repeats her language, which has been very controversial, um, which most people will not echo, including other government ministers of calling this hate marches. So she is, you know, so when, at a point where this seemed to have been possibly resolved, it really using kind of very strong language to, to kick it off again. And I think even, you know, particularly the comparison with Northern Ireland is, is making people put their heads in their hands who are, who are actually dealing with Northern Ireland because they're going, no, 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 this is nothing like Northern Ireland at all. It's so, quite astonishing. The amount that people have actually piled into this situation, which, as you say, the demonstration, the Palestinian demonstration, takes place away from the Cenotaph commemorations. It takes place at a different time. Mm. And as a result of this, we've now had the head of the Metropolitan Police weighed in yesterday by saying the, the morality of this is irrelevant. When it comes to the law, 
they will only stop a protest because freedom of speech is so important here in the United Kingdom. They will only stop a protest if there is a serious and real threat to peace. Um, one wonders, I, I, I don't know, when you look at the Times today, there's quite a lot of quite um, aggressive headlining. One of, one of the stories is actually saying something along the lines of marches show UK multiculturalism has failed. And then we have, you know, Suella Braverman having her voice being you know, uh, put all over the, the pages of the Times. One wonders what's happening inside the newsroom. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, there is a sense that this partly is uh, an argument that I think is partly the government has has brought on itself by continuing to sort of different ministers saying one thing and then saying another. And I think in in news terms, you know, there's this ability to point to differences between what different government ministers are saying. And so that that fuels it and that keeps the news cycle going because, of course, every British government minister who is now interviewed is constantly asked, do you agree with the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, about what she has been saying? And that's been happening all week on other issues as well. For instance, she was talking about uh, homeless people who were sleeping in tents on the streets and describing homelessness as a lifestyle choice. And so, of course, then every minister was asked, do you agree with that? To which most of them said, no, no we don't. <laughs> you know? no. So she is either doing this on purpose, possibly in order to get fired, in order to look like a potential future leader of the right of the Conservative Party, or or this is just what she thinks. And, yes, and she's being allowed to say it by the Prime Minister. Everything she says sort of is, is followed by a collective dropping of jaws. Mm. Um, let's move on to a story in The Guardian about how Germany is struggling with marking its past as well. Yes, that's right. Obviously, they are handling this in a different way. But of course, today, the 9th of November is a a very big day in the German calendar. So not only will today be the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht in uh, 1938, but also it's the anniversary of the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And this is marked generally in Germany as, you know, quite a a sombre date. And in particular, uh, at the moment, given what's happening in the Middle East, um, they're going to be very sort of somber memorials. Um, the Guardian is reporting on saying that tensions are high in Germany as they prepare to mark that today. Olaf Scholz is going to be giving um, a speech in a Berlin synagogue and he's going to repeat uh, the importance of Germany's commitment to ensuring that history doesn't repeat itself. Um, but there are wor- there are still worries within Germany. You know, they're saying that there have in some cases um, been some anti-Semitic attacks. There's a synagogue uh, which has, was attacked with Molotov cocktails last month, um, and there have you know, but they are saying um, civil rights groups there has they have been condemning the police and government for what they see as heavy-handedness and censorship in banning some of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations. And again, other people there are insisting that the the clampdown on demonstrations hasn't been strong enough. So there is you know a debate you know I think with slightly more measured language going on with, within Germany, but this is obviously you know given the sense or of the anniversary, then that is a big concern today. Finally, Terry, we have a moment to touch on some breaking news. The LA Times is covering this in, in some depth. I'm assuming that they've actually pre-written the, pre-wrote the copy and ready to go. It looks like um, this huge strike between the Actors' Union and Hollywood
Hollywood studios could be at an end. Yes, it seems to be. Um, according to uh, the LA Times and, and other outlets, they're saying that uh, SAG-AFTRA, the, the actors' union, seems to have agreed some terms that the writer's strike, which has been going on for 118 days, will uh, officially end at 12.01am on Thursday. So the actors will be sort of flocking onto the onto the sets at two minutes past 12, I assume. Um, but saying that they, they have agreed what they say is a, a very good deal um, and saying big contract gains, increasing the minimum wages, getting more money for uh, programmes that are on streaming services. And in particular, one of the big uh, issues that was this um, is to do with um, the use of artificial intelligence and, and working out rules on limiting whether artificial intelligence can be used, you know, for instance, to sort of recreate voices and stuff. So, um, but then the president uh, wrote Wednesday night on Instagram, we did it with lots of exclamation marks, the billion dollar plus deal. Thanks for holding out for what they're calling a historic deal. Thank you very much indeed, Terry Stiasny. The time here in London is 7.32am. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Let's have a look now at the latest headlines. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has held talks in South Korea on growing military ties between North Korea and Russia. Mr Blinken's visit to Seoul has been conducted as he continues to try to broker humanitarian pauses in the Israel-Hamas war. Meanwhile, Israel's spy agency, Mossad, says it's worked with the authorities in Brazil to prevent an attack by the Iran-backed militia group Hezbollah. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office has said the intended targets were Jewish. There's been a tentative agreement reached between the Hollywood studios and the actors' union SAG-AFTRA. The unanimous vote means a shutdown lasting 118 days could be brought to an end. Actors have been calling for better pay and safeguards on the use of AI. And Washington's National Zoo has bid a tearful farewell to its beloved trio of giant pandas as they've been returned to China. The bears have acted as a long-serving goodwill ambassador to the US capital. No reason has been given for the pandas' return, although diplomatic relations between the US and China are at an historic low. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Tourism in Iceland over the last decade has seen it as one of the world's fastest growing holiday destinations, increasing by 400% to 2.3 million visitors every single year. It's now the latest country to introduce a tourist tax to help protect its unspoilt nature, along with an ambitious climate goal of reaching net zero by 2040. Well, Canadian-born Eliza Jean Reid is the First Lady of Iceland and United Nations Special Ambassador for Tourism and the Sustainable Development Goals. Well, she sat down with Monocle's Tom Webb to discuss the enduring appeal of the island and why she still calls it home after 20 years. It's a wonderfully open, you know, small L liberal social democracy that is welcoming to everybody. It's incredibly peaceful. It's the world's most gender equal country. It's the world's happiest country. And then you have that in this natural setting. And I think that's a wonderful combination when it comes to tourism. Are you a local yet? Of course I'm a local. I've been for 20 years. I mean, I speak Icelandic with an accent and sometimes I maybe do things a little bit differently, but of course I'm a local, yes. How can I become a local? You can move to Iceland. We would love to have you. (laughs) What is the culture? If you do live there, how do you go about your leisure time? We spend a lot of time in swimming pools, which may be a bit counterintuitive to people who don't know the country, but we have so much natural hot water in the country that we have these beautiful outdoor geothermal swimming pools, which are as a, you know outdoors. 
but very warm. And I'm not there swimming laps. I'm sitting in a hot tub, enjoying the water, having a soak, chatting with a friend. And that's something that is very local. We also have a really strong cultural heritage. So there's always kind of music going on, art exhibitions to go and see, uh, book readings, all of those kind of things. It's a really active cultural life. So while you've been sitting away in the hot springs for the past 20 years, you've seen numbers of tourists go from a few hundred thousand to a few million. Why is that? How can you explain that? Well, I think we had a couple of global events that may put ice and more on the world stage. For example, the volcano that erupted in 2010 when people thought, wait a minute, if this ash cloud has disrupted air travel over Europe, it's not as far as I thought it was. We had a small economic crisis as well that made the country more affordable all of a sudden. But really, I think it's the fact that it's close by and it's safe, but very, very different. And then word of mouth spreads. And so people realize this is an interesting destination to go. More than 90% of the people who come to Iceland have a positive experience. So, of course, they come back and they tell their friends all about it. It. So in 2017, you were appointed the UN Special Ambassador for Tourism. Why did you take up that position? Well, it was the International Year of Tourism there, and it was tourism in conjunction with the Sustainable Development Goals, because we know that the travel and tourism industry, which employs you know one in 10 people around the world, is a, one of many paths to peace. And the more that we can understand each other as peoples and see what draws us together, the better that it is. And you know, personally, I just love seeing the world, and I love talking about travel in Iceland, and, and I was just really honored to be asked. And... It's not just tourists that are coming en masse to Reykjavik. We were seeing the Arctic Circle Forum. Monocle were there a couple of weeks ago. How important are these big global summits to you? I think they're important in an area to show, you know, Iceland is a small country. We can't necessarily be the best in the world at everything, but we can certainly lend our expertise to certain issues. So as you mentioned, the Arctic Circle Conference is held every October. It was there this weekend. I'll be participating in the Reykjavik Global Forum, which is an annual forum that is talking about women. It first was just for women political leaders and now has been expanded to women leaders in the business and private sector. And again, Iceland's a leader in gender equality. So these are issues that are showcasing where we can lend our expertise to the world in areas areas such as gender equality, sustainability, you know, low carbon footprints, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And you've written a lot about this. Can you tell us about your, your latest book? Yeah, I wrote a book called Secrets of the Sprakar, which is an old Icelandic word for outstanding women. And it's a book a little bit about what is it like to be in a woman in, quote unquote, the world's best country for women. But I really wrote it as, a, as an ode to my adopted homeland. So for people who are thinking of visiting the country, I hope it's a good backgrounder to experience what is it like to be a, a politician or a mom or a writer or a football player in, in the world's best country? What are we doing well and what else do we still need to be doing? I want to end with the biggest question that I've been carrying with me for years. I've never been to Iceland. And if I only go once, I argue, is it summer or winter? Is it northern lights? Is it hot springs? You're going to say all year round. But if I've got one opportunity to go, what time of year do I go and why? I mean, I have to say all year round because you can't, you know, you can't see the northern lights in the summer. You can't get the white nights in the wintertime, right? You can all year round, anytime you go, get amazing food and friendly people and those hot springs. That was Eliza Jean Reed, the First Lady of Iceland there. She was talking to Monocle's Tom Webb. You're listening to Monocle Radio. It's 
It's uh, what 9:39 in Chisinau and 8:39 in Zurich. Ukraine has taken a big step on the path to joining the European Union, with the EU Commission recommending to open formal negotiations for the EU accession for Ukraine. The Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky described it as a strong and historic step that paves the way to a stronger EU with Ukraine as its member. Well, not so fast, however. Ukraine still needs some reforms sped up before talks even begin about the possibility of any doors open. But also celebrating yesterday was Moldova. Alongside Ukraine, it was granted permission to start the process of EU accession. I'm joined now from Nijmegen in the Netherlands by Paula Erizanu, who's a Moldovan-Romanian journalist. A very good morning to you, Paula. Hi, good morning. So this is now Moldova, what, entering the waiting room? Well, we'll see what the decision of the European Council is in December. Um, We basically need an unanimous vote from all um, EU members um, that Moldova um, can actually start EU accession negotiations. Um, The earliest kind of timeline that the EU Commission provided was that if we have the the European Council vote um, then we could um, start EU accession uh, negotiations by March. Nonetheless, provided... this, is, this is a big milestone, though, isn't it? I mean, the Deputy Prime Minister, Nikolai Popesco, said this, this is a big move for the country. Yes, the politicians um, have really celebrated. I actually wept because um, uh, <laughs> I'm politically sentimental. Um, but the majority of the media in Moldova... Um, does see it as an intermediary step um, um, and um, um, we still have a lot of work to do as um, um, President Maya Sandu or Prime Minister Dorin Rechan emphasized um, um, and, and that's um, to do with uh, some of the conditionalities um, that have been imposed by the EU commi- Commission to Moldova in terms of the reforms it needs to undertake to undertake before it becomes um, eligible and kind of fully um, okay um, to start EU accession negotiations. What was it that made you cry? <laughs> uh, well, I think um, uh, it's it's really important uh, for me and for the country to um, um, to finally kind of break away from this grape past in which we were kind of under Russia's orbit and um, very vulnerable to um, any steps that it wanted to um, take in order to keep us um, its vassal state, basically, um, even if we declared independence in, in 1991 from it, we still have the Russian army um, uh, on our territory in Transnistria. So. Um, this kind of openness from uh, from the EU, this window of opportunity that the war in Ukraine and the um, Ukrainian resistance um, has created is um, a, a historic chance for Moldova to um, become more prosperous and more free and peaceful. Tell us what these um, reforms are that still need to be done. I mean, it, 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 a while ago, Moldova was told it needed to make reforms in nine areas, including anti-corruption, judicial government, governance. But it does seem to have made an incredibly quick prover- progress in terms of rooting out oligarchs and corruption. Well, um, yeah, the commission did um, emphasise that Moldova made major progress um, um, out of the countries that 
um, received its approval um, for uh, the start of EU accession negotiations yesterday. Um, but there are three um, steps that are still in progress, and that's the fight against uh, corruption, the reform of the um, judiciary, and the de-oligarchization of the country. Um, these are really difficult, complex um, steps, and it's not that there isn't political will uh, to um, um, achieve all of these reforms, but it's just that in order to um, do them well, it takes time, and also um, the kind of corrupt elements are fighting back. Finally, any accession to the European Union effectively means that this is the antechamber to joining NATO that, that Moldova finds itself in. This is something which will make Russia incredibly unhappy. Uh, well, I think it is possible to join the EU without joining NATO. Um, and it is written in our constitution that we are neutral. So um, we would have to change the constitution in order to join NATO. And at the moment, um, there is um, a majority of Moldovan support um, joining the EU, but there isn't as much debate about joining NATO, precisely because people are scared um, of this Russian narrative that um, joining NATO means becoming an enemy of Russia, which we haven't seen um, produce any consequences for Finland, for instance, which is Russia's neighbour. Paula Erizano, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time now to talk culture with Isabella Orlando, who's the arts and culture communication specialist, writer, documentary filmmaker. She joins me on the line from Oxford. A very good morning to you, Isabella. Good morning, Emma. There is the most amazing story that a huge swathe of Michelangelo's art has been discovered and is just about to go on, on show under the Basilica of San Lorenzo in Florence. It's incredible. So they're from a period of about two months in 1530 when the artist spent months underground to apparently evade Pope Clement VII's death sentence. So the room was discovered behind a trap door in 1975 by a former museum director, and it's now being transformed into a public space that visitors can go and see. And I have to tell you, the drawings are so striking. They remind me so much of like an ancient cave painting, but they're the work indeed of, of Michelangelo. It's pretty incredible. It's quite astonishing, isn't it? Because these are sketches which are on the wall of this strangely small chamber, which was discovered under a trapdoor um, by, the, by the curator of the, of, of the chapel as he was trying to work out whether there could be a new public exit formed for the museums. Indeed, yeah. And I think even at that point, the walls hadn't been stripped yet. So it was only after they'd stripped the walls. I think until the 1950s, the room was used to stole, to store coal. So it's that classic instance of somewhere actually really culturally precious kind of being underestimated, which I think is quite interesting. 
It's astonishing to think that um, we see the likes of Michelangelo as as arguably someone who just created art, uh, because that is what we focus on in so many ways. But Michelangelo was caught up in incredibly turbulent times, wasn't he? Because he had fallen out with the with the Medici family who ran uh, Florence. Um, because he was so supervisor of the city's fortification, and then he then there was an argument, and 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 he was effectively condemned to living underground for months. Yeah, indeed, and I think you know what's what's cool about this. I think is this bigger question that a leading culture sector voice here in London, Chris Michaels, has raised on his Substack called Creative R and D. It's it's the question of basically the history about the history of experimental spaces for artistic practice. So where do artists go just to try things out? And I think as someone who's really fascinated by the creative brain and artistic practice, it's amazing to see that even in this period of condemnation, Michelangelo has continued to practice his craft and continued to realize things. But it's also interesting that the subject matter of these sketches is very much in line with his other work. So I don't know if he perhaps anticipated that they would be discovered and attributed to him, or if he was really just quite an authentic artist. But what I'm interested in, and I hope that access to these drawings will allow us to explore further, is this idea of whether in a situation of isolation, the artist feels a little bit more, I suppose, permitted to be um to try something new and to do something interesting and different even if it might be not might not be their kind of uh, signature style um so perhaps there's something new going on in these drawings that we have yet to discover indeed there's a concentration of focus here i mean what what do we have on the walls i mean you, you mentioned the the kind of stuff that he was drawing but uh, from the few sketches that we've been allowed to see before the opening there is a there's a there's a sketch of a figure which doesn't look a million miles different from what ultimately turned into the statue of david um but he also has a drawing of leader and the swan um which then ended up being a painting. So do we get a clue that this this forced incarceration allows Michelangelo to have a purity of focus like nothing else? Yeah, I mean, I, I do wonder about that. I think given that his, I think he would have already been producing work at this time. I'm not sure about the timeline on different works and whether this was a precursor to or just a continued development of certain ideas that he had held. Um, but it is there is one sketch which I think is fascinating, which is supposedly a um, a version of a lost painting. So I think this this new material will give us access to potentially additional works created by Michelangelo that don't survive today. Let's move to some other news in in arts. What else has has caught your eye? There's something happening in London's East Bank. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a seasonal piece of news because autumn 2023 has been such a busy season for London um, on on the East Bank. There has been all of these announcements and openings of several new and exciting cultural and educational venues. So the V&A have opened an East Museum as well as a storehouse. University College London have created an East Campus. The University of the Arts has opened London College College of Fashion in the East. And so there are all of these um, new and existing cultural institutions creating new sites in this new cultural corridor is what the city is calling it. And what do they hope to achieve by, by sort of bringing up this new flourishing part of town? 
You know, I think there are pros and cons to the development. I think obviously as culture lovers, it's really exciting. We have plenty of reason to be excited. I imagine the city is trying to, in what's already a very packed mega city, try to create more space for culture. And it's really exciting to see the city funding and supporting the arts in that way. Um, I think space is a huge part of allowing the sector to grow. Indeed, the educational space is super important. But then there are also other perhaps questions um, that I have about this approach to kind of implanting this new quarter um, in the city's east side. In what way, the sort of the age-old perennial question about can you do placemaking when it comes from an external source? Indeed, exactly. And I think also when I think about London's culture, it's, it's very cosmopolitan. There are different influences. There are different populations that live in this big melting pot. And so when you just kind of see a whole area being raised up from the ground it it drives for me questions about like who has been displaced in that area or like will how will this these new facilities be adopted i think that remains to be seen but yeah for me culture is something that's accumulated and layered over time and something like this is i guess for someone who appreciates history and heritage a little bit less exciting than when culture kind of crops up organically there is one good element, though, which is the fact that the storerooms of the VNA, maybe the contents, may be on show. And this is a perennial problem, isn't it? Because we only ever see a tiny fraction of what museums keep. Indeed, yeah, no, there are plenty of. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of um, exciting pros to this new development. But the VNA storeroom is one I'm particularly excited about because, as you said, it makes use of the museum's extensive collection, which often doesn't get seen and doesn't see the light of day unless a researcher happens to be interested in that topic and goes and visits the archive. Um, So I think having this purpose-built space where visitors can see the storerooms that would otherwise be basically underground, I think the British Museum is notorious for having this huge underground tavern where all of the, um, all of the, the collections are kept. It'll be exciting to see how the public receives that and what comes out of that, perhaps new interest in researching certain topics or involving certain types of artifacts and archival material in in new artistic work. I mean, I'm really excited about the idea of bringing these things to light. Isabella Orlando, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Finally, France may have recently scored highly when it comes to the popularity of the office over working from home, but the French capital's workplaces are still not full enough. So step up Paris's universities who are filling the vacant spaces in the La Défense area of the city. Agnès Poirier is a journalist and author and a regular voice here on Monocle Radio. Uh, A very good morning to you, Agnès. Good morning. So that's just sort of places in context. La Défense is on the western tip of the of the sort of the centre of town, isn't it? And it was a it was François Michon's big plan, part one of his big projects, to create an enormous business district. So what's happened to it post pandemic? Well, I think we need to um, uh, to tell a bit more your listeners about La Défense because we we tend to think that the city of London is you know Europe's largest business district. Well, it's not. La Défense is Europe's largest business district, and uh, for architecture lovers, there's a detail that is very. Uh, uh, 
very important and and uh, quite funny. It's it's been built on a ten kilometer long axis with the Louvre Museum. So you're talking about François Mitterrand. You know, he loved those kind of big ideas. And so when you are uh, on top of the Arc of Triumph, well, you are exactly on line with the. Grande Arche, as we call it, the archway, the signature building of La Défense. So um, we're talking about 200,000 daily workers. We're talking about 20 skyscrapers and 72 office buildings and mostly sheltering insurance, banking and energy firms. And of course, as you mentioned, with COVID, you know, a lot of companies have allowed their workers to work from home. And so their need for office space has decreased. So what to do with those empty spaces? And you know what? La Défense is going to become very soon a, a real university hub. I mean, it, it started about 10 years ago, but the trend is really accelerating because uh, for business and management schools, um, it's a fantastic place uh, to, to, to be in, simply because it's very close to Paris. It's only three kilometers west of Paris. Um, it's on the line one of the metro uh, since uh, 1992, I think. And also, of course, the rental prices are much cheaper. And it's interesting to see you know, what kind of schools are attracted by uh, La Défense. It's usually, typically, a very successful business uh, school that was first set up in uh, the provinces in, in, in France, and they want to have their flagship uh, school in Paris. And so now uh, we're talking about 70,000 students going every day to La Défense to, uh, uh, to, uh, for lectures, etc. But the next challenge for... Um, La Défense will uh, be to actually have students living there, you know, to become a university town. Uh, and we're not there yet, but uh, there is plenty of space to create what's missing, that is to say libraries, sport facilities, student housing, and, and everything, you know, and facilities for students within a student budget. Um, so perhaps that's what we would call the post-carbon uh, uh, Défense um, in the next uh, few years. Yes, we only have a minute to try and explore this a bit, Agnes, but it's interesting because La Défense, the, the quintessential business district, a bit of a playground. You can go and see the Miro sculptures and the Grand, the Grand Arch of La Défense is fabulous to see, but it's never really felt like a student campus, has it? I mean, this will be a massive reimagining of an enormously significant part of the city. Well, yes, and but the, you know the thing is there's space, um, and it's already started because there are only twenty five thousand residents, you know, people living there in La Défense, and uh, there's this new idea that really will play well with everyone, students in, in included. It's to Open, open the access of ground and top floors of every office building um, in La Défense to and create cultural venues and restaurants, etc. So, you know, they are transforming that district into a living area and it will be fascinating uh, to see. And, you know, at the moment, there are a few thousand tourists going there, but it's very much uh, an area of, you know, of its own. So uh, I think it's just a question of uh, a few years' time. And, and we'll go there together. We will. And we'll go up the Grand Arch and we'll go and have a look at all the students. Agnès Parier, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. Um, 
that's all we have time for for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Christy O'Grady, Carlotta Ribello and Isabella Jewell. Our researcher was Monica Lillis and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London and The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.